everybody. Welcome to Doc Drew Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate you supporting us, supporting those that support the podcast. Don't forget the swing and sounds. Don't forget to head over to DocDrew.com and uh, click through on those various banners and things. And also, um, yeah, sign up for the contact list. Any questions you might have, we'll try to read them on the various shows. And don't forget the other shows that uh, we've got there, the other pods at DocDrew.com. Now, today I am extremely excited. Uh, full disclosure, I'm geeking out a little bit. Dr. John Kelly is the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at Massachusetts General, General Hospital, also the associate director of the Center for Addiction Medicine at uh, Mass General, associate professor of psychiatry in the field of addiction and medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Kelly, and I believe it's called the Spallen Professor. Is that right, Dr. Kelly? That's right, yes. I, uh, again, I am a tremendous fan of your work, and I appreciate you spending a little time with me. I'm, I'm deeply appreciative. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the sort of the state of addiction treatment and what a kind of mess it is, if you don't mind, and your perspectives on it. Uh, I want to sort of back into how people navigate through the system and then what we do to empower the the most common uh, the most common source of mental health resources that happens to be free mutual aid societies, Dr. Kelly. Yeah, well, um, we you know it, it, if if you if you zoom out for a, for a couple of minutes and think about where we've come from, I've just been thinking about this lately, just because it's roughly fifty years coming up for 50 years since the war on drugs was declared under the Nixon administration back in the early 70s. And uh, and if you think about it from a big picture perspective, we've come a long way in terms of treatment provision, the development of treatments for substance use disorders and addiction, um, both pharmacological treatments as well as empirically supported evidence-based uh, psychosocial treatments. Um, and you know, as a result of that concerted effort from the federal government back way back then, 50 years ago, uh, not only was that, you know, obviously there was a lot of uh, uh, rhetoric around the punitive stance uh, on, on the war on drugs, but also a lot of positive public health uh, moves came out of that, including research uh, institutes like National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, National Institute of Drug Abuse, SAMHSA, CSAT. ONDCP, uh, all these things that came out um, from that have produced a lot of uh, very good treatments. We've come a long way, first of all, in the last 50 years, particularly in the last 30 years, in both in terms of developing, testing new treatments and pharmacological treatments, as well as implementing those treatments around the country. So that's the good news. Now, uh, things aren't perfect, of course. Uh, we, we've got a long way to go. There's always room for improvement in terms of implementing treatments, uh, delivering them, creating a workforce which is qualified to, to deliver them, uh, and making use of all our resources, as you alluded to, not just formal treatment, but also the provision and support of community-based supports that can sustain people in remission over the long term at little to no cost. And these are things like mutual aid organizations, mutual help organizations, as you alluded to, but also uh, a growing cadre of different kinds of entities uh, that are largely low-cost but uh, have high extensity in terms of their um, ubiquity in uh, local communities that can sustain emissions. So all of those things have come around really in the last uh, 10 to 20 years, and we're developing a research base on them now. 
What, what the, that latter category? Give me, give us some examples of what you mean by those. So some of those would be things like recovery community centers. So these are like senior centers, but for people in and seeking recovery. So we are just doing, for example, the big first big study of these in New England and New York State. Uh, so these are places where people can go during the day. They can um, uh, find uh, 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 support for recovery, instrumental support in terms of linking people to jobs, uh, 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 employers who will take people with criminal records, for example, that we taught how to put the CV together, a cover letter. Um, they, they, they get support there for, for young moms in recovery. Um, they have can get access to recovery coaches or recovery mentors themselves in recovery uh, that can help them navigate the, uh, the, uh, the system, the treatment system and recovery support service system. Um, and um, uh, so that's one entity that's come that's come around. There's re- recovery residences, of course, have been around a long time. There's now good empirical support and cost effectiveness of these recovery high schools, collegiate recovery programs, mutual aid organizations like AA, NA, Life Ring, Smart Recovery. Uh, all of these kind of community-based entities have have grown in the last thirty years, in particular. Now, it, it, there's no doubt that these things work. It, it seems like one of the weaknesses we have now is getting people not just to them, but into them. Uh, and I know Keith Humphreys has a bunch of data about, uh, or at Stanford, about sort of the warm handoff uh, and getting people to, to get to these programs. Because uh, if you give them a pamphlet and some education, they don't go. But if you have somebody show up from the program and uh, say, I'll meet you this evening at such and such an address – they tend to go, and they have a whole different experience, too. Is, is that an area we need to improve things? Definitely, and I think, that's, you know, I think that's one of the rationales for this recovery coach movement around the country. Yeah. It's very much in vogue right now, isn't I it? Know that, you know, yeah, uh, we, the, hear it, we hear it a lot. The governor, yeah. uh, Christie, was big on that in New Jersey for a minute. Uh, and, and I thought, yeah. you know, I'm not sure what that was exactly, what those people were supposed to be, but the idea I got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the um, these rec- the, the recovery coaches are essentially peers in recovery. They're peer-based support uh, entities, peer-support peer, uh, support specialists that have this catchy name, recovery coach. Um, but essentially, that model emanated from the research on actually AA and NA um, mutual help groups. And what you're alluding to is the research that was done actually quite a long time ago now, but it's been replicated several times, um, uh, which, which described and tested this you know, idea of a warm handle or personal connection with somebody who is already in recovery and, and is, is embedded in one of these recovery support services. And here's an example um, of a very well done uh, and compelling study that was done that really uh, demonstrates this principle of a warm handoff. It was done in 1981 by Sisson and Malams. They did a randomized study where they randomized uh, people uh, who'd never been to AA or 12-step groups before. They were leaving treatment, and they were randomized either to just an encouragement to attend, so it would be a, a, giving them a, a meeting list and saying, uh, we, we'd strongly recommend that you go to AA and NA and groups like that because they're going to help you in your recovery. 
versus the other group that patients were randomized to was the same thing, but in addition to the meeting list and the recommendation to attend, they were asked to get on the phone with a current member uh, who agreed to take them, meet them and take them to a meeting. They followed them up for one month to see how many people in each group got to their first meeting. And uh, so a simple study, uh, and, and basically what they found, and again, these are people who had never been before, okay? So had never been to AA or NA before. So, so in the standard referral group where they gave them a meeting list with clinical encouragement to attend, nobody attended their Zero. first meeting. Nobody Zero. went at all. Crazy. Zero. Yeah. Zero. In the other group, every single person went. In fact, they went to, to roughly two to three meetings. This in that was, first was this month. a VA group? So, is that, is that, if I remember right, was it a VA no. thing? No. Okay. No, it was it was replicated in the VA. Oh. Christine Timko at Stanford did uh, three replications now of that uh, that style of intervention, which is essentially that idea of a warm handoff, a linkage to a person who is already embedded in that community resource. In in those instances. It was uh, 12-step groups. But the same principle that you're alluding to is, I think, has been replicated, demonstrated that the advantage of having a peer who, as part of a, a clinical team or as part of a recovery community center team, that can help people get and stay linked into, you know, via building rapport, breaking down those barriers of stigma and discrimination, which often people with addiction problems feel, when they're able to connect with somebody who's been there, trodden that path, has that lived experience of active addiction and recovery, they're more likely to get connected and become engaged in that free community resource. Is it also accurate that the mutual aid societies are the most commonly accessed or certainly searched category of mental health resource in this country? Yes, yes, by far. And, and it's free. I mean, it's free for the most part. I mean, most of them are free. What... What first of all, I have two just sort of incredulity questions. How much can be saved, and why do we have any resistance to getting behind this? Well, yeah. Uh, so we've actually just finished a systematic review on uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and twelve-step uh, uh, facilitation interventions. So these are these are clinically delivered interventions that uh, stimulate linkage to. Uh, AA in particular. Now, we just finished this Cochrane review, uh, so it's fresh on my mind, uh, actually, because we just finished it and submitted it yesterday. Oh, congratu- congratulations. That's a, that's, a, that's a big deal. Yeah, so it, it, was, it was a huge deal, yeah. <laughs> it was a massive amount of work, oh so uh, I'm very, just very glad to have it off my radar. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was, uh, yeah, it was um, just a, a ton of work. But anyway, it was uh, interesting. I think the results are uh, may surprise some people at least that uh, just how good these uh, free resources are. Uh, number one, increasing rates of continuous abstinence and remission. And number two, at increasing uh, the average number of days on which people are abstinent and also decreasing consequences related to alcohol and other drug use. But also, as you alluded to, because these are free resources, they also confer a very large economic benefit. So I describe this as really the closest thing in public health that we have to a free lunch. Now, here's why. In a study that was done in the VA system, which obviously is the largest healthcare system in the world, and they are incentivized because it is a national healthcare system, they have a natural incentive to, make, to maximize quality and reduce costs. 
And so one of the studies, big studies that they did was to actually do a comparative evaluation of programs, treatment programs, that uh, strongly linked, encouraged linkage to AA and NA versus did not. So they compared those two different types of programs. When they looked at their clinical outcomes at one and two years after treatment, they found that, in general, patients coming from these two types of programs, one that strongly encouraged AA and NA participation and one not, they found that the patients that the, the, the patients coming from the programs where they were strongly linked to AA and NA had significantly better abstinence outcomes. Uh, otherwise, the outcomes were, were, were similar across programs, so they had higher rates of continuous abstinence by about one-third. Wow. But here's the thing. Um, what they also found was that, on average, it saved about $10,000 per patient over this two-year period Jesus. in terms of um, uh, reductions in healthcare resources because people were utilizing these free, ubiquitous, indigenous community recovery support services, namely Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. So, um, essentially, if you think about that, that's $10,000 per patient and improving outcomes. If you multiply that by the roughly 1 million or so just with an alcohol use disorder who get treated every year, that's $10 billion in savings. And that, and, and that doesn't simultaneously, take and that doesn't take into account yeah, the fine. lost workforce, you know, the returning to the workforce, no, or any of those sorts that's of things. Purely, yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Now, so that's not 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 counting the 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 increase in productivity and reduction to criminal justice costs. So that's purely healthcare savings. That's ten billion dollars. That's only if you if you count one million people with alcohol use disorder who treat. Now we know roughly two point three million people get treated formally for a substance use disorder each year. Uh, and then most of those, you know, 60-70% are, are alcohol use disorder. So that's an underestimate. But just a minimum of $10 billion in savings through linking to these free indigenous ubiquitous recovery resources, namely Alcoholics Anonymous in this case, uh, can actually reduce that economic you know, burden that these, these, these disorders confer and simultaneously improve outcomes. So that's why I call it the best, you know, kind of the closest yeah. thing we have to the free London public health. Absolutely. Because we've got, you know, so many of these, um, re, you know, free recovery support resources, not just AA and NA, but things like Smart Recovery, Life Ring, Women for Sobriety, all these other different entities which have emerged and grown over the years, which I would argue may also confer uh, similar benefits. So... This is my incredulity. Why isn't that headline news, and why in the world do we resist this? For those of us in the field, it's it's imminently obvious, and yet to see people even push back to the slightest degree to this is categorically mystifying to me. Well, I think part of it has been kind of the representation of the research and the misrepresentation of, of the evidence base for it. Uh, and this is part of the reason why we wanted to do this um, new Cochrane review, because the Cochrane review system, as you know, is the gold standard in medical science yep. and it's recognized as such. Around when can the world. I get it? When can I get um, my hands on it? Well, it will be out probably in the next couple of months. It's just under review right now. So um, it'll be out in, in a couple of months and, uh, and I'll be happy to uh, send it to you. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll hear about it because I, I suspect it will get a lot of uh, publicity, yes. and it will be news. Now, and I, I think part of it, in answer to your question, is that 
um, is just the, the the kind of the lack of systematic, uh, you know, uh, production of a, a good summary of the evidence. And so there's lots of piecemeal pieces that people have have gathered together and put out. But this is a uh, a very concrete, systematic, uh, you know, high, highly rigorous, transparent review. Um, if, if there's any resistance, if there's real resistance in the months after this comes out, you and I have to have another conversation to figure out what the problem is because it, it just it should be it should be a sea change. It should be it should be a categorical change in the in the discussion about mutual aid societies and that and it should be put to rest. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, our friends at Purple Mattress, that's right. It's a 100-night risk-free trial. you got to check it out. It's um, The founders of this are two brothers who have been developing cushioning technology for 30 years, things like medical beds and wheelchairs. And in 2016, they finally decided to use their patented comfort technology to create Purple. I love this mattress. We've got it at our house. It's different. The Purple Mattress will probably be different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses this brand-new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory phone you're used to. Purple material feels very unique. It's both firm and soft at the same time, so it supports while feeling really comfortable. It's supported where, it's need, where you need it. It's breathable, and it's cool. I mean, it's literally cool because uh, it's breathable, and so you stay cool at night. And again, there's a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund with free shipping and returns backed by a 10-year warranty. I mean, they really stand behind their product here because they know what they've got. They've got something good, something special, and you will like it. Free in-home setup, old mattress removal. Now, you're going to love Purple. And right now, my listener will get a free sheets and a free mattress protector with your mattress purchase. Just go to Purple. That's the color. Purple.com slash D-R-E-W. That is Purple.com slash Drew. Purple.com slash Drew. All right, help our podcast stay free to download with minimal ads. Responses will help us align at this Podcast One survey. Survey short, it's anonymous, takes no more than five minutes. Go to podcastone.com slash my survey or go to podcast one and click on the survey banner. If you filled it out in the past, we do thank you, but we still need to do it again if you can. Do all of us at Coral Network and Podcast One a huge favor by filling it out. Thank you for supporting my program and taking the time to complete this survey. Really do appreciate it. It helps us align the appropriate advertisers to this audience and stay free to download. Here's some useful car tips you might not be aware of coffee filter and a bit of olive oil, clean your interior. Get the excess weight out of your car. Improve your gas mileage. Why don't we think about that? Keep the proper tire pressure in your tires. Well, here's another tip you might not know, but I don't know where you've been if you don't. True Car helps people get used cars as well as new cars. It's not just for buying new cars. With their True Car certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you will enjoy the True Car way, which is real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you're buying new or used. And with true car users, you see what others paid, you see that scattergram, so you know you're getting a good deal. The price you lock in is for an actual vehicle on a true car certified dealer's lot. They're also going to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with the true car certified dealers. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out True Car for a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Now, there, you have a, a slide that I, that's sort of famous in my own mind that I, I wonder if it has something to do with um, some of this resistance. But maybe you could review it for me a little bit here. There's the, the duration to that first year of sustained sobriety, the number of treatments, the duration, how much time it takes, the years it takes in the contemplative phase. I don't think the public understands that. So when they don't see a magical 
cure, they're sort of confused by things. But go ahead and review that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I know what slide you're referring to. Yeah, it's something that, uh, you know, I put together many years ago just because I think when we we can get, you know, disheartened perhaps as clinicians or as family members when we don't see our loved one or patient getting well as quickly as we might want. Um, but when we zoom out and we look at the bigger picture of what actually happens clinically in the clinical course of, of an alcohol or other drug use disorder, we can see uh, a fairly long-term view. And I think this is where the idea of a chronic illness comes from. Basically, when we look at studies um, of people who have substance use disorder and look at their clinical course, what we see is that it takes about four to five years after the onset of their disorder before they will start seeking specialty treatment. So that could be some kind of outpatient treatment, speaking to a provider, uh, attending a mutual health group, There's some kind of formal or informal intervention it takes about four to five years after the onset of the disorder. Now, part of that delay, of course, is the stigma and discrimination and fear that people, shame that people feel when they have this disorder because they see other people being able to control their alcohol or other drug use, but they cannot. And there's a lot of uh, potential negative consequences which come up, could come about as a result of acknowledgement and disclosure. So uh, try and keep it hidden. Uh, when, uh, after that four to five year period, they find that they are unable to go on any longer or there's an inter some kind of intervention by the criminal justice system like a DUI or something that brings them into contact um, with the treatment system, it still takes about four to five treatments and about eight years on average to achieve one year of full sustained remission. So that's quite a lot. Again, that's an average. So some people are actually getting into recovery right away, but on average, uh, about eight years to achieve one year of full sustained remission and on average about four to five treatments. The, the thing to remember there is that although that might seem a little bit disappointing, and say, well, isn't that, you know, can't we do better? Again, this is an average. But most of those days, actually, are abstinent days. So when people are uh, get, even get their first treatment, they might stay sober, let's say, uh, abstinent for a few months and have a relapse. They might get stay on the next attempt. They might get uh, stay sober for six months, have a relapse, nine months. But until they get that one year of full sustained remission, that is pretty much complete abstinence or no symptoms for one year, it takes about eight years on average. Now, here's the other thing, and this is where I think uh, we, we need to pay attention to the, the management, the recovery management or disease management of, of addiction, is that even after people achieve one year of full sustained remission, it takes on average about four to five years of sustained remission before the risk of meeting criteria for substance use disorder in the next year falls below 15%. So why 15%? Because 15% is the annual risk in the general population of meeting criteria for a substance use disorder. So to be no more likely than anybody else in the general population to meet criteria for a substance use disorder in the next year if you've already had it, takes four to five years of continuous remission. So this is why groups like AA, NA, mutual aid groups, recovery support services in general, recovery community centers, et cetera, can play a very strong role in our overall public health approach to these endemic problems because they can provide this ongoing community-based support that can help people stay in remission over the long term. What we generally see, of course, in studies, most studies of treatment are only 12 weeks of treatment, 
Whereas if we're lucky, a one-year follow-up. So we don't capture this longer-term view of what is needed to address these chronic illnesses over time. And this is where um, I, I think it's very important for us to recognize, and I think that's why there's been this growth in these long-term recovery support services, which are highly cost-effective. Yeah. So, so I want to put a. I'm going to say it a little harshly, which is that the the way addiction research is done is inadequate because the timelines are too short. And by the way, the data they look at is often inadequate too. And then also, so many are lost to follow up, and and they often don't count those as treatment failures. So I, I just I a lot of I I'm just always looking at jaundicely at, at addiction treatment, uh, you know, evidence based uh, research because. It's often really weak data. It's very, very weak. And the timelines are inadequate. But that's sort of my harsh sort of vision of of so much of the research that's led us down the primrose path in so many directions. Um, The other thing is that, you know, the the manpower and the resources that a mutual aid society provides, they will sit on people with addiction and watch them and stay on top of them. There simply aren't enough healthcare dollars on earth to meet that need of people early in recovery that the mutual aid societies can provide. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to look uh, much more broadly at, you know, because this is the top public health problem in the country, it's actually the top public health problem in most middle and high income countries around the world. And it confers a huge burden of disease, disability, premature mortality that really, you know, our professional treatment system can do a lot, but, it, it can't do every, it cannot do everything. And this is why we need all the help that we can get. And so, you know, when we have free entities in the community that can, that have been shown to be effective and cost effective, we need to pay attention to that yeah. in terms of our national policy. That's right. Uh, because, um, you know, it, the, these are expensive things to treat. These are high volume, high burden diseases that we can't afford to to have everybody go and see a physician every week for, right. uh, you know, we, we need to find, you know, they can play a very powerful role. Don't get me wrong. Clinicians and professionals yes. play a very powerful yes. role. And, and they some, can actually turn, they can be a turning point for many people. And some, some essential, uh, some people treatment. need medical management, psychiatry. I'm not, I'm not demeaning the need for that, but I, yeah. I, but I am just astonished the way we squander the resource or have, or, or sort of uh, attack the resource of mutual aid societies over the last 20 years. It's been, just bewildering to me. But um, I recently spoke with Dr. Robert DuPont, who was the really great guy, and, and he experiences recovery and addiction much the way you and I do and, and understands it the same way. And I was surprised to hear his enthusiasm still for replacement kinds of therapy. And the way he talked about it, and, and I want to get your opinion about this, he talked about public versus well. He didn't use the word private, but but he was talking about public resources for addiction treatment. And I think what he was saying was, and he used the word scalability a number of times. And, of course, we're talking about the opiate crisis here particularly when we talk about that. And I, I think he had sort of was saying, well, in order to save lives and people with no resources and you know multiple diagnoses, the only way we're going to do it is with some kind of replacement management. Do you agree with that? Replacement management being like methadone or suboxone. Correct. Yes. And I, I'm so sort of, opioid, and I'm sort of, my feeling, yeah. just let me take my own bias on it. 
I, I'm worried about the excessive enthusiasm about it. I see tons of my peers prescribing for these patients and really have no understanding of the patients or how to treat addiction or what recovery is or what addicts are all about. And yet they're you know handling a couple hundred of them. And I, and I know exactly what I'm doing. I don't think I can handle 30. Uh, and so it, it's just concerning to me the ex- excessive enthusiasm for that and at the same time attacking mutual aid societies. But but I just want you particularly to address what I suggested about Dr. DuPont's point of view, which is that to be scalable and to be effective and to save lives, this may be our only alternative. What do you say? Yeah, well, I, I, again, I, I think we have to look toward, to the evidence base. Uh, and this is what I think is very important. As much as possible when we're, th- you know, Coming up, we're trying to come up with good policy, rational policy, uh, healthcare policy. It's very important to look at the evidence. Now, we have good evidence for methadone. We have good evidence for suboxone, for buprenorphine, uh, in terms of its ability to reduce a, a, a infectious disease transmission, to reduce overdose death. And these are things, I think, are the most important things is to make sure that we keep people alive, number one. Number two, can we stabilize them? so that they have a chance to get into long-term recovery. And both of those medications have been shown to do that, and they're really first-line treatments. So when we're talking about opioid use disorder, we're really talking about, um, you know, the effectiveness of these medications to, to uh, as first-line treatments. Now, Trexone also, which is an antagonist, not, yeah. not an agonist, uh, of course, but the, uh, has also been shown to be uh, efficacious also, particularly when um, people are already stabilized off of opioids. So if you can actually, and they just did a big uh, trial, which was published in, in JAMA, I think it was just a, about a month or two ago, mm. um, which found that it was a head-to-head trial of buprenorphine, naloxone, and naltrexone. And overall, uh, the buprenorphine, the suboxone, did did better overall, but here's, here was an important uh, nuance to their finding was that if people were actually uh, detox and stabilized off of opioids, they did better on naltrexone. So both of these, all, all three of those medications, both methadone, full agonist, partial agonist, buprenorphine, and an antagonist, naltrexone, or the injectable Vivitrol, once a month shot, were shown to be uh, very helpful for people with opioid use disorder. So these, are, of course, are scalable in the sense that they can be quickly implemented, disseminated and implemented as long as docs are, are trained to, as you say, you know, to, to know what to do uh, to, to, and use the proper protocol to, to deliver the treatment. And again, isn't it interesting that we only use naltrexone on, on our peers, on physicians and mental health professionals? We don't, strangely don't use buprenorphine on our peers, but okay. <laughs> Just, I mean, not, at least not want, let them go back to work. Um, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting how you, how you get these different, uh, you know, different protocols for different subpopulations. Right. I'm not quite sure, don't really understand that. Right. Um, yeah, and I don't understand, the, the only, you know, and when I look at the literature, there's two things that concern me. There's not an enthusiasm for naltrexone, which I don't understand why there isn't an enthusiasm for it. The enthusiasm for buprenorphine is largely built on the fact that the patients find it rewarding and that they behave better as patients, which I'm not sure is a good sign for their recovery. So I, I, I don't know. I just worry about that. And I'm really worried about the concurrent use of other substances, which a lot of guys, a lot of physicians aren't, aren't screening for. 
and all and uh, the younger patients that I have that on, on Suboxone divert it to to their peers to buy heroin, and the older patients on Suboxone use other drugs. That's sort of been my experience, and, and a lot of that doesn't get picked up by the literature. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, undoubtedly some of that goes on. Uh, we see that where I work also, but I think. Again, when we when we look at the the studies that have been done, some of these are quite long term studies. There was one study, for example, uh, called the POT study, which was an opioid agonist treatments for prescription opioid use disorder, um, and it was a large multi site trial. And they followed them up for forty two months after initiating uh, buprenorphine, naloxone, uh, and they found roughly two thirds were in remission uh, at forty two months. So that's good news uh, when you're talking about an illness which can potentially kill a lot of people yeah. um, that can actually produce that degree uh, of remission. So, you know, these, these medications um, have shown, you know, in, in randomized controlled trials with pretty good follow-up uh, over time to be, uh, you know, effective and uh, can help people reduce overdose deaths and also uh, help people to get and stay in remission. I, I, but I think we have to be careful. Your point was well taken that, I, you know, is, is you know we don't want to fall into the trap of one size fits all. Right. Uh, and I think that's where, in some ways, we are going with a buprenorphine. Certainly, is, is a first line treatment. It's very important because it can save lives. But any patient want to take it, so they won't take it. What do you do then? You can't just say, "Well, see you later." Then you know, yeah. come back when you're when you're ready. Right. Uh, we need to have something else that we can offer people who are unwilling to take that first line treatment, even though it's effective. So, what do we do? And I think we we've we've lacked um, the attention to alternative pathways, which need to be properly investigated. One of those, I think, is is um, sober living environments. Yeah. So, for example, having people go. With strong, you know, who don't want to go on medication, who won't go on medication, what do you do? Um, so we have good evidence for sober living environments that people can get into those and uh, find a pathway to recovery that way. Um, I used to, I will tell you that yeah. I had ways of getting people into sober living with food for $800 a month, and it was between that and an Eltrexone injection for $600, I would, I would send them to the sober living. That that was a, that was a conundrum I was faced with a lot, uh, and and so the, the again how we allocate the dollar resources is very challenging. Yeah, and I you know and I, and I think we need we, we we really do need right now we need more research on other pathways uh, when when patients are not going to take medications. What are we going to do instead? Uh, and we we can't just turn patients away. Uh, we we've got to find other alternatives which can be. Uh, you know, ideally, as at least as effective as, as, as medications can be for opioid use disorder. Now you may have seen me talking about a product called TheraWorks Relief. And if you are one of the millions of Americans who suffer from muscle cramps in your legs and feet, this is relief. And now we're starting to get testimonials coming in, and uh, I'm really proud of this product. It's a way of getting relief from muscle cramps, which is something that can really make people suffer and disrupt your sleep. And sometimes older patients can really be a burden. And it's doing it without taking a pill. TheraWorks Relief is a tropical foam that's clinically proven to relieve muscle cramps fast. And with daily use, TheraWorks Relief can even prevent muscle cramps before they start. Now, for over a year, I've been recommending TheraWorks Relief to my family and friends and some patients as well. And my patients have been passing it on to other people. I I didn't ask them to do that, but they've been doing it. 
Now, the word breakthrough gets tossed around easily these days, but TheraWorks Relief is the real deal. It's a life-changing product, and best of all, you don't need a prescription. TheraWorks Relief is my choice for preventing and relieving muscle cramps. Make it yours, too. Get TheraWorks Relief today at select CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens pharmacies or at TheraWorksRelief.com. That's T-H-E-R-A-W-O-R-X, TheraWorksRelief.com. And talk to your pharmacist about TheraWorks Relief. They're as happy as I am because you don't have to take a pill. Experience relief for muscle cramps for yourself. That is TheraWorks Relief for your muscle cramps. All right, you heard me talk about Quip. This is not the first time, right? It's something you use every day. It makes a boring part of your day enjoyable, and you don't have to go to the store to get it because Quip ships directly to your door. It's that perfect $25 product, and it is the right thing, and it is supported by professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and right now when you go to GetQuip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P, GetQuip.com slash Drew, get your first refill pack with a Quip electronic toothbrush, you get the free refill pack for free. That is your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Drew. Again, Quip comes with a mount. You know it. It's a new electric toothbrush that packs the right amount of vibrations into an ultra-slim design, guiding pulses to simplify better brushing. This is the future. Adam always talks about there being no advances in dentistry. Well, this is an advance. It also offers that optional subscription plan delivering new brush heads on a dentist-recommended three-month schedule for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. That's it. Get Quip Toothbrush. Again, it's getquip.com slash Drew. I want to go back to that 42-month uh, multi-center study you mentioned. Where, where was that published? Um, Do you remember? Because I think I remember seeing that study, and I think I remember sort of dismissing it because there was a huge dropout rate, if I remember right, like huge. If if I remember, no, no. Um, not in that study. That that was a good. That had a good high follow up rate. Um, Roger Weiss from McLean was the was the BI, okay. and I, I forget now where it was. It, it may have okay. it may have been American Journal of Psychiatry or. Okay. Um, I can't remember. I can send you the. I can definitely Thank send you, you the article. Uh, I'll find it. I don't read yeah. journal psychiatry, so that's probably why I didn't see that one. It's, it's reminding me of one I saw in the addiction medicine journals. And as usually, I just I look at the dropout rate. and I'm like, mm, forget it. Um, but good. That's good to hear. That's good to know. What 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 keeps you up yeah. at night now? What do you what are you worried about? What do you I, obviously the Cochrane study? But now that you're over that, what's gonna what's gonna and and I think <laughs> I'm hearing you saying <laughs> other other alternatives to the medication resistant patient. But there's things you're, you're fret worrying about. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's. I think we have to be smarter, smarter overall in our approaches. You know, uh, in, in terms of you know how we go about addressing these endemic problems. You know, we've got this opioid overdose epidemic, which is you know, so heartbreaking mm. and infuriating at yeah. the same time yeah. uh, to watch so many people, so many families bereaved um, by this very preventative um, uh, disorder and preventative uh, accident of, of, of overdose. Um, so that's really sickening and, and disheartening, and we need to be very urgent uh, about what we're doing. And I, I, we've, we've lacked the urgency uh, in addressing it uh, you know, we've started to mobilize, but it's still uh, we're still way behind the curve. Yeah. Uh, we've done a lot of good things, and I think we have to really pay attention to the same kinds of strategies that we're implementing now in crisis to be to make sure that we improve uh, our public health infrastructure for addressing these behavioral health problems, both addiction and mental health, 
uh, right across the board going forward so we don't fall into this same trap. You know, we're spending, talking about spending trillions of dollars on infrastructure, but what about public health infrastructure? That's where, you know, we've got people dying right now from uh, accidents and injuries and overdoses related to alcohol and other drug use uh, in, in the hundreds of thousands, um, much more than any, any you know, uh, traffic infrastructure, accidents and injuries and car crashes. Um, and yet we don't spend, you know, we only spend a fraction of the amount of money that we're, we're proposing to spend on, on, on other infrastructure. So I think being smarter about public health and recognizing these endemic problems uh, that need to be addressed uh, in a much more cost-efficient way. And that's why I think we need both formal and informal to be smart about. Um, and to be fair, you know, we are, you know, working with the government right now and doing a few things with the government to actually deliver to them a systematic review, so like this Cochrane review and, and other reviews that we've done, um, to uh, establish the, you know, what we know from a science base about these entities uh, that can address these endemic problems, both treatment and, and non-treatment, formal and informal interventions. Uh, so we we will be we'll be going down to DC later in the summer to to present those data, those systematic reviews across these different entities, so that we can actually, you know, uh, be smarter, be smarter about. Uh, how we focus our attention, not just on professional services, but also on these other entities oh my to, God. to address these problems. I, I so hope you get some progress that way, even if it's just a. I mean, they want to spend, you know, they want to hold drug companies and uh, accountable, you know, for uh, some of this epidemic. And I, I imagine there's going to be a large, large sum, much like in the tobacco settlement. And I'm hoping some of it goes to, you know, supporting and educating about, about mutual aid societies. I, I, it would be a tragedy if it didn't. It seems to me. Well, I, I think yeah, we, I, I think we really need to recognize that, that that we've got these free, ubiquitous indigenous communities recovery support services all over the place. Uh, we just saw a study, actually, uh, thankfully from the National Institutes of Health, just got funded last week. It's a five-year study looking at smart recovery, which is a cognitive mm. behavioral. Uh, recovery support group. It's kind of like the, you know, a, a secular version of AA yeah. based on cognitive behavioral principles. Yeah. Uh, so it's the first, it's going to be the first real world investigation of this growing, uh, uh, mutual, mutual aid group. Right. Like AA, but, but different. Uh, but, you know, it has the same kind of therapeutic dynamics operating in peer support. Um, as as an alternative, so because we know that not everybody goes to twelve step groups or wants to go, but uh, if we have other entities that we can say, yeah, you know what, these other entities also work. If we can produce more studies, and that's why I'm grateful that we we got funded to do this study to look at smart recovery, so we can then say, look, there's another option, and it's empirically supported. You know, hopefully we'll find empirical support for it. Um, if not, it can be you know something else, but. But uh, we can offer that to patients who are in or seeking recovery as another pathway to them. And we need much more research like that. Yeah. Thankfully, NIAAA, actually, to give them a call out, a shout out here, National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, have actually made recovery research a priority oh, uh, really? last year. So that, yeah, they put out a program announcement for more recovery research. 
And it's exactly the kind of things that I've been talking about. So looking at recovery community centers, mutual aid groups, including AA, as well as smart recovery, life and other entities that are out there in the communities in which people live, right around the corner from where they live. So if we can find empirical support for these things at sustaining remission, the way that we have for AA, then that's really good news because uh, as, a, as a nation, as a society, we need to find cost-effective, smart ways that we can utilize all of our resources to bring to bear on these endemic uh, uh, you know, behavioral health problems. Recovery has not been Dr. Koob's interest. Is he the one leading the way in that? Mm. Yeah, yeah. He's been actually, he, just despite the fact that he comes from a uh, from the other end of the spectrum yeah. in terms of science, you yeah. know, he was he was uh, looking at compounds, developing compounds and, and molecules for uh, to understand the neurobiology yes. of, of addiction That's and his alcohol. Thing. And, and made some major major breakthroughs too. Very very important stuff. Yeah, but he's yeah yeah exactly and. Uh, and he, but he's interested in the big, the big macro picture. How do we get and keep people in remission? How do we achieve that? That's what he's really about. Now, we can do that course right across the spectrum from the molecular level to the you know, public health level, to the epidemiological level. So, and he's all about how do we do that. So he, I, I think he's been a really great addition as the leader of NIAAA to bring the focus around to sustaining remission and, and recovery. That's great. That is good news because I've always liked his work, but I, did, I didn't know he was interested in this yeah. stuff too. So very interesting. Well, yeah. I, I, I really do appreciate you spending a little time with me here today. I mean, I hope people get something out of this. I, I am I, I, I'm extremely interested that, that this Cochrane study get out there and that people sort of, you know, 12-step and mutual aid has been under attack for a while and it's it's hurting people and it's wasting money, and it should be an integrated part of what everyone does who's struggling with these conditions. It, it's it's free, it's available, it's effective. I mean, why wouldn't you? If you really want to get well, why wouldn't you use the modalities that are available? And uh, particularly ones that are free. It just, it's uh, always been sort of mysterious and astonishing to me that, that people would not. And, you know, when, these, when I don't know about your experience, Dr. Kelly, but when I you know, people get sober long term with my patients. They always they always look back at whatever I did and went, "Yeah, you really didn't do anything. You just kind of kind of turned me towards this process." And I'm like, "I'm fine. I'm good. I'm fine. As long as I got you into the process, I'll take that. I, I, don't, I didn't need to do anything more. Your your outcome is well, all that matters. That's pretty good, actually. Yeah. Many patients tell me that they got they got into recovery just in spite of me. Oh, ah, well, so, I've had that too. Don't worry. Well. Had that too. Well, yeah. I consider that a therapeutic intervention <laughs> if I piss them off enough to get sober. <laughs> That's always good. No, no, but I think you're right. I think you know. I, I, I think we've done a poor job scientifically of presenting the evidence. I think this this Cochrane review is going to help a lot because I think it's going to really show the evidence in its truest form, its most transparent form. And I think, and I hope that that will get disseminated and people, because. It's really, you know, I'm a, chiefly a, a science-based person, so if I can look to see what's the evidence, what's the good quality systematic evidence, and what does it point to, what should we be doing, that's what we need to look to. And I think this, you know, Cochrane Review is, is, has shown that um, these other uh, studies that I've mentioned on, on medications or other recovery support services have also shown that. So we just need to look to the science base and, and have that be, Ideally, the way that we form policy, of course. But but I again, I I have to have to beg your your forgiveness and patience when it uh, 
you know, because because the the reason you had to do this big review is because the science was unsound before and it didn't fit with the clinical experience we were all having, and yet there was stuff being shoved at us, and people were being demeaned for doing things that had worked for thirty years for free, yeah. uh, and, and yeah. that that made a kind of a skepticism about the way the science was being done. Of course, the science eventually will prevail; it will tell the story, but. For a while there, it, it wasn't telling it accurately, and I, I'm so thankful that finally it will. Yes, I agree. Uh, and uh, listen, at, at the moment you need help shouting about this, or it's available, or it can be shouted about, please send it my way, because I will be very vocal about this, because uh, it's very exciting. Oh, yeah, to, no, I'll be, I'll be, yeah, no, I'll be, absolutely, I'll be very happy to. Yeah, thank you. Will it be posted on your website? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. No, it'll be it'll be all over the place. I think once right. it's published, you know, there's going to be it's going to be all over the media. I'm sure you will hear about it. But right. I can certainly send it to you once we, as soon as we know that it will be, you know, when it will be officially published, right. and 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 uh, we'll let you know. Yeah, and, sure. and I will ask the listeners to look for it at John Kelly K E L L Y P H D dot com. You can find it there. And listen, I really appreciate you spending time with me today. I'll, I'll let you go. And uh, I'm I'm such a fan. I'm I'm standing applauding and. Uh, just uh, cheer. I'm a cheerleader, and so whatever I can do to help support, please, please do not hesitate. Thank you for spending time with us. Bob, you bet. Thanks for having me. I right. really appreciate it. Good right. talking to you. Thank right. you. You bet, John Kelly. And hope you all learned something. I'll see you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. 